Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Today we got a lot on the docket. We're, uh, it is the month of January, and January is the month of the Most Holy Name of Jesus. So we are going to be talking about devotion to the Holy Name. going to have some uh, insight from Father Paul O'Sullivan and uh, St. Louis de Montfort, and of course the great Bernard of Clairvaux. Also, Pope Francis has declared back in 2019 the third Sunday of um, Ordinary Time, or the third Sunday after Epiphany in the Extraordinary Form, as the Sunday of the Word of God. And so we're going to take a look at the Word of God today, uh, specifically the longest chapter in the Bible, which is itself a reflection on the Word of God. So more about that later. Also, if time permits, we're going to explore what uh, what St. Bernard and uh, Thomas Akempis have to say about meditation, primarily biblical meditation. So all of that coming up. But first, uh, the gospel from this Sunday in the extraordinary form. It's the signs of the kingdom of God from Matthew chapter 8, and it's the first 13 verses. When he had come down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Suddenly, a man with leprosy approached, knelt before him and said, Lord, if you choose to do so, you can make me clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I do choose, be made clean. Immediately his leprosy was cured. Then Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses prescribed. That will be proof for them. When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion approached him and pleaded for his help. Lord, he said, my servant is lying at home paralyzed and enduring agonizing sufferings. Jesus said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but simply say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man subject to authority with soldiers who are subject to me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come here, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those who were following him, Amen, I say to you, in no one throughout Israel have I found faith as great as this. Many, I tell you, will come from the east and the west to sit with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the banquet in the kingdom of heaven. But the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown out into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus then said to the centurion, Return home. Your petition has been granted because of your faith. And at that very hour, the servant was healed. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. Like COVID today, leprosy was a terrifying disease in the ancient world, and because there was no known cure. And in Jesus' day, the Greek word for leprosy was actually used to uh, a variety of similar diseases, uh, some of which were highly contagious. And if a person contracted this contagious type, he was uh, a priest declared him a leper, and, and he was banished from his home and from his city and, and sent to live in a community with other lepers until he either got better or died. Lepers who went abroad into the world had to use noisemakers to announce their presence so that people would know to get away. Because for the Jews, leprosy was not only a physical affliction, 
it also made a person ritually or ceremonially unclean. So the leper in this passage technically breaks the Mosaic law when he comes to prostrate himself at the feet of Jesus. And the master himself would also be breaking the law if he touched the man. And yet, when the leper begged Jesus to heal him, Jesus did reach out and touch him, even though his skin was covered with his dreaded disease. But Jesus doesn't become unclean by his contact with the leper, either physically or ritually. On the contrary, the leper becomes clean. In Leviticus 14, we read that the ritual law required a healed leper to be examined by a priest to be sure he was really cured of the disease and therefore able to re-enter society, and, and specifically the synagogue and the temple worship. And Jesus wanted this man to give his story firsthand to the priest to prove that his leprosy was completely gone so that he could be restored to his community, but that it was, had been, he had been miraculously healed by Jesus. Because there's a bigger picture here. Uh, Jesus' miracles, as we know, uh, are signs. And the man's leprosy represents sin. Because sin is also a, uh, a deadly disease, and we all have it. Only Christ's healing touch, okay, only sanctifying grace can miraculously take away our sins and restore us to real living. But first, just like the leper, we have to realize our inability to cure ourselves and ask for Christ's saving help to be cleansed of our sins. And that help is communicated to us today through prayer and through the sacraments. And when a sick man, uh, when the sick man welcomes Christ's word, the kingdom is open to him, and he becomes for us a model and a sign of the Christian made clean by the grace of Christ. Now, the centurion was a career Roman military officer in charge of a hundred soldiers, hence centurion from the Latin word for 100. Now, Romans in general, and Roman soldiers in particular, were hated by the Jews because of the, you know, the oppression of the Roman Empire. And yet this man's genuine faith amazed Jesus. And Jesus commends the centurion for having greater faith than any of the Israelites. And he prophesies the ingathering of the Gentiles into the kingdom before healing his servant from, you know, from afar with just a word. And this despised Roman, his faith put to shame the hypocritical piety of the many Jewish re uh, religious leaders that Jesus had to deal with. He told the crowd that, that many religious Jews who should be in the kingdom would be excluded because of their lack of faith. They could not accept Christ or his message because they were entrenched in their preconceived notions about the Messiah as a worldly leader. Now, Pope Francis has said famously that uh, God is a God of surprises. And that's certainly true in the sense that God's actions are often unexpected because he's mysterious. Uh, as it says in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways, are your ways my ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts above your thoughts. And we must be careful not to become so set in our religious habits that we expect God to work only in specific ways. In other words, you don't limit God by your personal perspective or your lack of faith. Now, the Jews should have known that when the Messiah came, his blessings would be for the Gentiles too. 
After all, Isaiah uh, prophesied that faithful people of God from, quote-unquote, all over the world would be gathered to uh, feast with the Messiah. But this message came as a shock because uh, they were too wrapped up in their own affairs. You know, I, I believe in the existential reading of Scripture, that is to say, uh, in applying the Bible to your own life. And, and we're going to be talking about that later. But what, you know, we, we must not apply the words of Scripture so personally that, that we forget to see that what God wants to do, uh, that he wants to reach out to all the people that he loves, and that means everybody. Now, Matthew emphasizes this universal theme that Jesus' message is for everyone. That's the point of this story. The Old Testament uh, prophets, Isaiah and uh, Malachi, both revealed this. But many of the Jewish leaders of Jesus' day chose to ignore it. And there's a lesson for us there, too. Each individual believer has to choose to accept or reject the gospel. You know, as I've often said, you must embrace your Catholic faith, okay? Not just inherit it. Being born into a fam- uh, Catholic family is a wonderful blessing, one that I didn't have. You know, to grow up being catechized and sacramentalized, you know, uh, baptism and confession and Holy Communion and then confirmation. This, of course, is essential. The sacramental life is essential to being a Catholic, but it won't guarantee you eternal life. You must personally believe in and choose to follow Christ. Now, finally, the... Um, miracle performed for the centurion shows that this great pilgrimage of all peoples toward the kingdom of God had already begun. And, and he evokes that beautiful image of the great feast, the, the heavenly banquet, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where all the believers are definitively gathered together for eternity. But Jesus said outside this joyful communion, there's only darkness, the, the, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is a, a phrase that's only found here and in Luke 13, describes the anguish of those who have remained indifferent to the call that was welcomed by the very people that they despised and denigrated. Scripture said the, the, the centurion pleaded for Jesus' help and called him Lord. And there were so many obstacles that that centurion could have let come between him and Jesus. You know, pride, number one, and power, and prejudice, and doubt, and and a sense of his own self-sufficiency. You know, he's a Roman after all. But he didn't. And if he did not let those barriers block his approach to Jesus, then we don't need to either. Nothing should stand between you and Jesus, most especially sin. And that's why we repeat the words of the centurion at every Mass before we approach Holy Communion. Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. The words of the centurion have become those of all Catholic believers who go to encounter the Lord in Holy Communion. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, January being the month of the Holy Name and devotion to the Holy Name, and then more about the Word of God later uh, as we continue with lots more No-Nonsense Catholic right after this. Stay with us. (music) 
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. January is the month of the Holy Name. First of January is the Feast of the Circumcision of our Lord, which is when he received the name that the angel revealed to St. Joseph back in Matthew chapter 1. And devotion to the Holy Name of Jesus, one of the oldest and simplest of all Catholic devotions, and one that was promoted by the great 12th century doctor of the Church, my favorite saint, uh, St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Father Paul O'Sullivan also wrote a popular booklet about it, a swell little booklet. You can still get it from Tan, I believe. It's called The Wonders of the Holy Name. And in that booklet, he makes three main points. First, that, that the divine name is, in truth, a mine of riches, he says. It is the fount of the highest holiness and the secret of the greatest happiness that a man can hope to enjoy on this earth. It is so powerful, so certain, that it never fails to produce in our souls the most wonderful results. It consoles the saddest heart and makes the weakest sinner strong. It obtains for us all kinds of favors and graces, spiritual and temporal. Two things we must do, he says. First of all, we must understand clearly the meaning and value of the name of Jesus. And second, we must get into the habit of saying it devoutly, frequently, hundreds of times every day. Far from being a burden, it will be an immense joy and consolation. So that's point number one. His second point is that the name of Jesus is sweet and gentle and attractive, and devotion to the holy name is a mark of predestination. The greatest saints teach us that the the name of Jesus contains within itself one of the shortest and and, uh, easiest, he would say sweetest, ways to grow in holiness, which is to say to, uh, you know, acquire and retain the grace of a sure and sound sanctity. St. Louis de Montfort said, What does the name of Jesus, the proper name of the incarnate wisdom, signify to us if not ardent charity, infinite love, and engaging gentleness? The distinctive characteristic of Jesus, the Savior of the world, is to love and save men. No song is sweeter, no voice more pleasing, no thought more appealing than Jesus, Son of God. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds to the ear and the heart of a chosen soul. Sweet as honey on the lips, a delightful melody to the ear, thrilling joy to the heart. And then his third point is that the holy name of Jesus is itself an indulgenced prayer and can gain countless blessings for the poor souls in purgatory. St. Paul tells us that our Lord merited the name Jesus, which means Savior, by his passion and death. And Father O'Sullivan says, each time we say Jesus... Let us clearly wish to offer God all the masses being said all over the world for all of our intentions. We thus share in these thousands of masses. Now, that's a lot of, that's a lot of grace. And then he, he goes on to unpack this, the, this third point, that each time we say Jesus, we gain a partial indulgence, which we may apply to the souls in purgatory, thus relieving and, and uh, liberating many of these holy souls from their awful pains. Thus, he says, they become our best friends and pray for us with incredible fervor. I don't know about you, but I could certainly need that. I could certainly use that. I certainly need it. Uh, many people have the custom of saying some short indulgence to joculation 500 or 1,000 times each day. For example, Sacred Heart of Jesus, I place my trust in thee, or 
sacred heart of your heart of Jesus, burning with love of us, set our hearts on fire with love of thee. And Father O'Sullivan says these are most consoling devotions. They bring oceans of grace to those who practice them and give immense relief to the holy souls. And the same is true for the simple one-word prayer of the holy name, that one word, Jesus. And regarding ejaculatory prayer, Father O'Sullivan goes on to say that those who say the ejaculations a thousand times a day, what a multitude of souls they can thus relieve. What will it not be at the end of a month, a year, fifty years? And if they do not say the ejaculations, what an immense number of graces and favors they shall have lost. It is quite possible, he says, and even easy to say the holy name of Jesus a thousand times a day. But if one does not say it a thousand times, let him see it five hundred or two hundred times. The third intention we ought to have when saying Jesus, he says, is to offer all the masses that are being said all over the world for the glory of God, for our own needs, and for the world at large. You know, the Holy Mass is celebrated um, every day all around the world and all around the clock. I, I understand every hour of the day somewhere the host and chalice are being raised and our Lord is becoming present, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And Father O'Sullivan reminds us we can and should share in all of these. How so? He says, The Mass brings Jesus to our altars. At every Mass he is once again present here on earth as really as when he became man in his mother's womb. He also sacrifices himself on the altar as really and truly as he did on Calvary, though in a mystical, unbloody manner. The Mass is said not only for those who assist at church, but for all those who wish to hear it and offer it with the priest. All we have to do is say reverently, Jesus, Jesus, with the intention of offering these Masses and participating in them. By doing this, we have a share in all of them. It's a wonderful grace to assist at Mass and to offer one Mass. What will it not be to offer and share in all the Masses celebrated every day? Therefore, he says, every time we say Jesus, let it be our intention to offer to God all the infinite love and merits of the Incarnation, to offer to God the passion and death of Jesus Christ, to offer to God all the Masses being celebrated in the world for his glory and our own intentions. All we have to do is to say the one word, Jesus, but, and this is the crucial point, knowing what we're doing. Father O'Sullivan uh, says that St. MacTilde was accustomed to offer the passion of Jesus in union with all the masses of the world for the souls in purgatory, and that our Lord uh, showed her purgatory open and thousands of souls going up to heaven as a result of her little prayer. And when we say Jesus, we can offer the passion and the masses of the world either for ourselves or for the souls in purgatory or for any intention we please. I'll give a final word to St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who was a great promoter of this devotion, one of the first, uh, as far as I know. He said, Jesus, to me, is honey in the mouth, light in the eyes, a flame in our heart. This name is the cure for all diseases of the soul. Are you troubled? Think but of Jesus. Speak but the name of Jesus. The clouds disperse, and peace descends anew from heaven. 
Have you fallen into sin so that you fear death? Invoke the name of Jesus and you will soon feel life returning. No stubbornness of the soul, no weakness, no coldness of heart can resist this holy name. Are you surrounded by sorrow and danger? Invoke the name of Jesus and your fears will vanish. The name of Jesus is the purest and holiest and the noblest and most indulgent of names, the name of all blessings and of all virtues. It is the name of the God-man, of sanctity itself. To think of Jesus is to think of the great infinite God, who, having given us his life as an example, has also bestowed the necessary understanding, energy, and assistance to enable us to follow and imitate him in our thoughts, inclinations, words, and actions. If the name of Jesus reaches the depths of our heart, it leaves heavenly virtue there. And that's no nonsense. And I think that's why you can see why I love St. Bernard so much. Very clear. And and it never ceases to amaze me how modern that uh, medieval uh, spirituality is. Okay, speaking of, uh, well, not medieval spirituality, but <laughs> I just wanted to mention that uh, talking about being the first of the year, that means that our spiritual warfare conference, the annual spiritual warfare conference, is coming up before you know it. This March, the 25th and 26th of March, 2023, we will have our usual lineup world-renowned exorcist Father Chad Ripperger, our own Jesse Romero, Dan, Dr. Dan Schneider, and Kyle Clements from Libra Cristo. And also this year, the uh, special guest is going to be Bishop Joseph Strickland, joining us at St. Uh, Joseph's Church in Pomona, California. So if you, want to, uh, if you want to register for this, and I suggest you register ahead of time because it sells out, admission is $95 for a single, $180 for a married couple, it's already open. It's already filling up. So if you want to attend, do not hesitate to visit evmpr.org and register online or call the office toll-free at 877-526-2151 and reserve your place today. All right. Um, I'm going to go ahead and jump into this. Last Sunday was the third Sunday in ordinary time, in the ordinary form. Uh, which in the year 2019, Pope Francis designated for the yearly observance of the Sunday of the Word of God. So even though I uh, attended Mass in the uh, extraordinary form, I'm able to uh, participate in the Sunday of the Word of God. I'll tell you how in just a second. Um, Pope Francis said, Devoting a specific Sunday of the liturgical year to the Word of God can enable the Church to experience a new how the risen Lord opens up for us the treasury of his word and enables us to proclaim its unfathomable, unfathomable riches before the world. Now, the Sunday of the Word of God is not technically a separate liturgical feast. You know, the, the, the readings and the prayers of the third Sunday of ordinary time are the same, you know, uh, for cycles A, B, and C, just the way they, they were before. You know, the idea is simply on that Sunday to place a special emphasis um, in order on, on the Scripture, in, in order to promote a more intense study of the Bible. And, and that sounds like a swell idea to me. Uh, so in honor of the Sunday of the Word of God, I took a look at Psalm 119. 
Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk by the law of the Lord. These are the opening words of Psalm 119, which is both the longest psalm and the longest single chapter in the entire Holy Bible. Uh, Psalm 119 is itself a meditation on the beauty of God's Word and how it helps us to stay morally pure and to grow in faith and holiness. Now, it, it consists of 22 carefully constructed sections or stanzas, technically, because it is a poetic construction. And I say carefully constructed because each stanza corresponds to a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet in order, and each verse beginning with the letter of its section. Now, that's in the original Hebrew, of course, kind of gets lost in the English translation. But that psalm, its 176 verses, are what we're going to talk about when we return, uh, and probably for the rest of the program, uh, and maybe spend a little time on meditation and Lexio Divina at the end, when we come back with lots more No-Nonsense Catholics. Stay with us. All right, I mentioned before the break that Psalm 119 is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the Bible. It is comprised of 176 verses. And there's a small tree tradition that uh, the 176 verses were written by 176 different people, each of whom contributed one verse, uh, and it was you know compiled into this psalm back during the Babylonian exile about 450 B.C., now, the more common opinion is that it was written um, by the priest-slash-prophet Ezra. In any case, almost all of those 176 verses mention God's Word. And that kind of repetition was um, common in the Hebrew culture. You know, people didn't have their own personal copies of the Scriptures. First off, everything was handwritten, and, and the Codex... Uh, single pages bound together like a modern book. Now, while that was invented around the first century AD, um, it didn't become common until the sixth century. So you can imagine a a room housing a collection of scrolls uh, sufficient to hold all the books of the Bible. You know, it would look like a wallpaper shop. So God's people memorized his word and passed it along by word of mouth. And the Psalms were originally poems, literally they were songs, Uh, And the structure of this particularly long psalm was designed to facilitate memorization. So now, in in a psalm this long, of course, there are various themes having to do with the Word of God and its application. And I mentioned earlier that I believe um, in the existential reading of Scripture. That is, that, that it's the existential reading of the Bible. In other words, applying what we read to our own lives that makes the Scriptures a living word, because we live it out in our lives. And it's the application of Scripture that makes the Bible God's Word to us today, to you and to me. Now, obviously, we don't have the time to unpack the longest chapter in the, in the whole Bible in just a couple of segments. So last night, I, just, I looked through the psalm and, and looked for verses that kind of jumped out at me, and then I jotted down my reflections. So I want to... Uh, I want to share those with you now. 
for example, Psalm 119 verse 9 says, How can a young man lead a spotless life? By living according to your word. And by spotless, we understand the psalmist to mean morally pure or clean. And, and let's face it, we are drowning in a sea of impurity. Everywhere we look, including but not limited to this diabolical rectangle that we all have with us, you know, carry around at all times. Everywhere we look, we find temptations to impurity, temptations to, to lead an impure life. 400 years ago, Our Lady of Good Success prophesied that in our days, immorality, particularly sexual immorality, would spread, in her words, like a filthy ocean that, would, that, that touches everything. She said there'll be almost no innocence found in children, nor modesty in women. And then closer to our own day and time, Mary appeared again, only here in the United States, as Our Lady of America, and admonished U.S. Catholics to be devoted to the indwelling of the Holy Trinity. In other words, devoted to the state of grace that is the kingdom of God within us. And uh, also to especially imitate her purity and that of the Holy Family. She said this in 1959. So this is just prior to the dawn of the sexual revolution in 1960. In fact, her last appearance was on my birthday, the day I was born. Now, remember, back in the 1950s, the Catholic Church in America was, was vigorous. I mean, it was really finally coming into its own. Sunday Mass was, was highly attended. Regular confession was common. Sunday Vespers, the 40 Hours Devotion, and other you know, rites and rituals and just community uh, uh, events were, were very popular, as was the Family Rosary and devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. American pop culture offered up... Uh, family-friendly TV shows, Uh, one of the most popular being Father Knows Best. Can you even imagine a TV show today with that title, Father Knows Best? Right? Uh, Even Bishop Sheen had his own Emmy Award-winning primetime TV show, Life is Worth Living. In 1953, the Kennedy Bouvier wedding was, was the social event of the year, if not of the decade. And, of course, in 1960, Americans would elect JFK as the very first Catholic president. Now, who could see, uh, who could have foreseen the the cultural upheaval of the sexual revolution that was just around the corner? Well, the Blessed Virgin Mary, of course, um, and as well as the inspired author of Psalm 119. Lord, how can a young man lead a spotless life? How can we lead a spotless life? by living according to your word. It's not rocket science. And in reading that verse, it made me think uh, of Ecclesiastes 12.1. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the bad times come and the years draw near when you will say, I take no pleasure in them. Solomon seems to agree with that old saying that youth is wasted on the young. You know, and, and I'm now old enough to understand that a young life lived without God can produce a, a bitter, lonely, and hopeless old age. But a young life centered around God is not only fulfilling, it will make the days of old age, you know, when, when we're faced with our mortality, with our decline, our disabilities and sickness and so on, it makes those days richer and more bearable. Being young and strong is exhilarating, it's exciting. But the excitement of youth can become a barrier to closeness with God if it makes young people focus on passing pleasures instead of uh, eternal values. Young people, especially young men, need to be convinced 
to make their strength available to God while they still have it during their youthful years. You know, what, what a shame to, to waste the gifts of youth on evil or meaningless activities that become bad habits and then harden into vices and make even a young man callous and cynical. If there's any one message I could give to my younger self or to my children and my grandchildren and to you, no matter how old you are, it's this. Seek God now. Psalm 119 asks a question that troubles us all, not just the young. How do we stay pure in a morally filthy environment? And if the current situation proves anything, it is that we cannot do it on our own. We need counsel and strength more powerful and more dynamic than the tempting influences around us. But where can you find that strength and that wisdom? Psalm 119 verse 9 says it's not just by reading God's word, but by doing what it says. And bring this full circle, we remember that Christ himself is the word of God, the word made flesh. And it was the mother who gave him that flesh who told us explicitly, do whatever he tells you. Or in the words of of his cousin, St. James, be doers of the word and not hearers only. But okay, where do you start? Well, by avoiding sin. And how do you do that? Skip down to verse 11. It says, I treasure your word in my heart for fear that I may sin against you. In other words, keeping God's word in our heart is a deterrent to sin. And and this alone should inspire us to memorize some scripture. And, And I know that's Catholic kryptonite. But you already have the Lord's Prayer memorized, and that's from scripture. You know, not to mention the Apostles' Creed, which is longer than any Bible verse you may expect to memorize. You know, like Psalm 119.11, for example, I treasure your word in my heart for fear that I may sin against you. The fact is, though, that, that even knowing Scripture, even knowing Scripture by heart, will not keep us from sin. You know, we must also put God's word to work in our life making it a vital guide for everything we do. Again, this is how the Word of God becomes a living Word. Now let's look at the next few verses, uh, the next dozen verses, 12 through 24. The Scripture says, Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your decrees. With my lips I recite all the judgments you have announced. I rejoice in following your statutes more than I would rejoice in endless riches. I will meditate on your commands and respect your ways. I find my delight in your decrees. I will never forget your word. Be good to your servant so that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may clearly see the wonders to be found in your law. I am only a wayfarer on the earth, but do not hide your precepts from me. My soul is ever consumed with longing for your judgments, You rebuke the arrogant, the accursed, who stray from your precepts. Set me free from scorn and contempt, for I have observed your statutes. Even though princes assemble and slander me, your servant meditates on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight, for they offer me counsel. And that's a beautiful passage of Scripture, and it's an amazing prayer. You know, because most of us chafe under the rules, because we think that they restrict us from doing what we want. 
So at first glance, it might seem strange to hear the psalmist talk about rejoicing as much in following God's laws as in having great riches. But not when you realize that God's laws were given to free you to be the person that God created you to be. They restrict us from only from doing those things that might damage us, to, to keep us from being our best. God's guidelines help us to follow the narrow path that leads to salvation and to avoid the broad road that leads to destruction. In verse 19, the psalmist says that he's a wayfarer or a, a foreigner on earth, depending on your translation. Have you ever felt that way? I have to say, even after more than a quarter of a century as a Catholic, it still strikes me from time to time that I'm not really at home anywhere. And that's because, like, like Christ himself, you and me, Christ's followers, are, we're in the world but not of the world. We're subjects of a kingdom that's not of this world. We, we are pilgrims here. And so, like the psalmist, we need guidance on our earthly sojourn. You know, almost any long trip requires a map or a guide. And I, I recall as a boy making a yearly road trip from California to Missouri. And so every year my dad would go to AAA to get a triptych, you know, a map with the best route highlighted on it because he knows that uh, that was the way that we would be able to steer clear around, you know, uh, ever-changing obstacles and be able to choose the best route. And it's the same thing with the Holy Scripture. All right, we'll be back with more right after this on No Nonsense Catholic. Stay with us. Welcome back. Just uh, following up on the what we were talking about at the end of the last segment, as we travel through life, the Holy Bible really should be our roadmap, which pointing out the safe routes to follow, the obstacles to avoid, as well as our final destination. And we have to recognize our status as, as pilgrims, as, as travelers and foreigners on the earth who need to study God's map to learn the way. Because if you ignore the map, you'll find yourself wandering aimlessly through life and risk missing your real destination altogether. Why do you think we read so much scripture in the Holy Mass? Something to think about. In verses 28 and 29, the psalmist asks our Lord, Help me to understand the way of your commandments, and I will meditate on your wonders. My soul is wasting away in sorrow. Renew my strength in accordance with your word. Our lives are cluttered with rule books, and, and not just traffic laws and tax codes, but a, a, an endless barrage of ten ways to do this and seven things to remember about that and, and one weird trick to, you know, fill in the blank. But the fact is that those authors never come and help us to follow the rules, but God does. And that's what's so unique about the Holy Bible, that, that God not only provides the, the rules and the guidelines in his word, but he comes to us personally each day to give us grace, to, to strengthen us. He, he, he dwells within us. He comes with us on our pilgrimage so that we can live according to those rules. And all you have to do, <laughs> all you have to do is pick up your cross every day 
and invite him to accompany you and then respond to his direction, that is, to his empowering grace and the inspired guidance of his word. That is why you need to read the Bible every day. Down in verse 36, the psalmist asks God, Dispose my heart to follow your statutes and to flee selfish gain. (laughs) In today's world, most people covet financial gain. Money represents power and influence and success. It makes people attractive. Money, for many people, is their God. A false idol, of course, but, but one with such an influence in their lives that they hardly think about anything else. You know, it's true, as Paul McCartney observed, the great theologian Paul McCartney, money can't buy me love. But the fact is, money can buy certain comforts and offer a certain level of pleasure and worldly security. But far more valuable than material wealth is obedience to God's word, because through it, God can change our hearts. And that's a heavenly treasure rather than an earthly one. Jesus tells us to store up treasure in heaven, um, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven that no thief can come near and no moth can destroy. For where your treasure is, there uh, will your heart be also. Obedience is the key to storing up treasure in heaven. And we should do what God commands regardless of the financial implications. And I could tell you some stories, uh, but time does not permit point is, we should make the psalmist's prayer our own, asking him to turn our hearts toward his statutes and not towards making money, because that's what's in our best interest in the long run. Jumping down to verses 44 and 46, the psalmist says, I will keep your law continually, forever and ever. I will walk in complete freedom because I have sought your commands. I will speak of your statutes in the presence of kings and will not be ashamed. I hear the psalmist talks about keeping laws and yet being free. Uh, Because as we've already seen, and, and contrary to what we often expect, obeying God's laws does not inhibit or restrain us, except from those things that we oughtn't to be doing in the first place. You know, on the contrary, it frees us to be who God created us to be. You know, just doing whatever you want or, or whatever you feel like doing, that's, that's not freedom, it's license. But by seeking to do God's will, by seeking God's salvation and forgiveness, that's how we have real freedom. Freedom from sin and from the oppressive guilt that is the result of it. By living God's way in accordance with his will, we have the peace of a clear conscience that no amount of money can buy and the true freedom to fulfill God's plan for our life. This is the ultimate key to happiness and fulfillment in this life and happiness forever in the next. Uh, Psalm 119, going down to verses 97 through 104. I truly love your law. It is my meditation throughout the day. Your precept has given me greater wisdom than my enemies, for it is mine forever. I am wiser than all my teachers because I meditate on your commands. I have greater insight than the elders because I keep your commandments. I point my feet away from evil paths so that I might observe your word. I refuse to ignore your judgments, for it is you yourself who have taught me. Your words are sweet to my palate, 
even sweeter to my tongue than honey. Through your commandments I achieve wisdom, therefore I hate every way that is false. There's an old saying to the effect that no man is ignorant who knows the scriptures, and no man is truly educated who does not know them. God's word makes us wise, wiser than our enemies, wiser than than any teachers, no matter how well-educated, who ignore his word. You know, Geoffrey Chaucer, the author of the Canterbury Tales, he said, the greatest scholars are not usually the wisest people. True wisdom goes beyond accumulating knowledge. It's not just about scholarship. It's not just about knowing about God, but knowing God. It's about applying knowledge in a life-changing way. Intelligent people, experienced, uh, well-educated people are not necessarily wise because wisdom comes from allowing God's teaching to guide us. Going back to verse 92, it, it says, If your law had not been my delight, I would have already perished in my misery. And then verse 97, I truly love your law. It is my meditation throughout the day. And we're going to close up with that. St. Bernard of Clairvaux said, a great 12th century biblical scholar and Christian mystic, he said, meditation renders life honest and well-ordered and imparts knowledge of human and divine things. That's why the church uh, encourages not only to read the Bible, but to practice a kind of contemplative Bible reading called Lexio Divina. Uh, this is a, a contemplative, meditative way of reading Scripture. And it's, the, the process is variously described, but it is, it, it is a process. You know, once you've selected the passage you're going to read, you, you first pray, and then you read the passage, and then you stop to reflect. And, and you know, you might consult a commentary, uh, read the passage again, maybe even another translation, and take some time to quietly contemplate, you know, uh, his word just by putting yourself in his presence. I think of the words of Psalms uh, 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. And then you apply the fruit of your meditation uh, on his word to your life, right? That's the application. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's when the scripture becomes a living word. It becomes God's word to you today. And then you pray again and thank God and ask him to help you to, to live out his word. You know, during his earthly ministry, our, our good Lord was constantly surrounded by people who were eager to, to hear his divine wisdom, to, to experience his healing touch. But he took time apart from the crowd to pray to the Father. And, and we have to do that. We have to make time to pray and to meditate on the things of God. And that includes the prayerful reading of Scripture. Uh, the first followers of St. Francis of Assisi asked uh, him for his advice about Scripture reading, and he said uh, uh, that you should follow the example of our Lord, uh, of whom the Scripture says he prayed more than he read. And, and while we're considering advice from the Middle Ages, I, I'd like to give the last word to my, my go-to spiritual reading after the Holy Bible, The Imitation of Christ, uh, by Thomas Kempis. He also advised, uh, like our Lord, that we should, too should find times of quiet to contemplate the goodness of God in our lives. 
In book 1, chapter 20 of The Imitation, he says, Seek a convenient time to search your own conscience, meditating on the benefits of God. Restrain curiosity. Read only those things that will move you to contrition rather than give you distraction. Okay, I'm going to stop here, put it in reverse, and read that again. Restrain curiosity. Read only those things that will move you to contrition rather than give you distraction. See, this is the polar opposite of doom scrolling on Twitter or or Facebook or whatever, which is nothing but, you know, empty curiosity and and, and the desire to be distracted. You know, and now you might say, well, that sounds good, but I'm I'm a busy person. I don't don't have the time. And Thomas Akempis, speaking to you from the 14th century, has an answer. (laughs) He says... If you will withdraw from unnecessary talk and useless running about and listening to the latest gossip, back to Facebook again, you will find the time to occupy yourself in devout meditation. He says the greatest saints avoided the company of worldly people as much as possible, for they preferred to be alone with God. It's like what another Thomas, the, the great Dominican theologian Thomas Aquinas said, Knowing whom to avoid is a great means of saving your soul. And then in in Book 3, Chapter 31 of The Imitation, uh, Thomas says, Many are the admirers of contemplation, but few are willing to use the means needed for its attainment. It is a great hindrance to contemplation that we depend so much on outward signs and material things and practice little mortification. So meditation and mortification go hand in hand. Prayer and fasting. Hmm? He says, I do not know by what spirit we are led, nor what the aim is of those who are called spiritual persons, that we direct so much of our effort and solicitude, that is concern, toward transitory things, but seldom recollect our senses or give thought to the inward state of our own soul. The sad fact is that after a short period of meditation, we become involved in the external actions of everyday life without pausing to examine our conscience concerning all that we do. We pay no attention where our affections lie, nor do we have sorrow for our lack of pure intention or the sinfulness of our deeds. It never ceases to amaze me how relevant medieval spirituality is to a modern Catholic like myself, but it has to do with the fact that the spirituality of St. Bernard of Clairvaux and St. Thomas Aquinas and Thomas Akempis and, you know, uh, Catherine of Siena and and St. Gertrude the Great and St. MacTilde and all the rest we're so utterly saturated in Scripture. As, as Jesus himself said in Matthew 24, 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. And that's no nonsense. All right, thanks for being with us again. We'll do it all again next week. Until then, may God richly bless you and your family.